Welcome to Pro Life in 7 Minutes, the show where I spend over 20 minutes teaching you how you can persuade a pro choice person in only 7. I'm your host, Katherine Burrow. I'm the co founder and executive director of the Abortion Dialogue Academy, also known as ADA. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back, everyone. If you didn't notice, we skipped an episode last week. I'm switching the podcast show to an every other week publishing schedule because trying to do every week was maybe just a little too ambitious. Um, So yeah, so we're going to be publishing every other Saturday. And I'm really excited for today's episode because it's the last content we have to cover before I can start teaching you the seven minute argument. If you're new to the podcast, I'm going to recommend that you go back and listen to these episodes in order because today's episode is going to cover some concepts we covered in previous episodes. So if you remember in the very first episode, I talked about the concept that these conversations with pro-choice people are not really conversations. They're more of a presentation. And the analogy I used is, you know, you are like a prosecutor and the pro-choice person is the judge and you're essentially making your case to the judge. And your goal is that the judge will find it persuasive. But as you're making the case to the judge, the judge might have an objection or a question, so to speak. And you're going to need to know how to respond to that. And so that's typically where new volunteers get in trouble. They're they're doing the seven-minute argument, and then the purchase person says something, and the volunteer kind of panics because they don't know how to respond to what they just said. And so what's interesting is that when you start actually having these real conversations, there are only three objections or three arguments that the purchase person is going to bring up in your conversation. So you have to learn how to figure out which of the three arguments the purchase person is making. And once you master this skill, you'll realize that there's nothing a purchase person can ever say to you that you're not going to know how to respond to. So that's what I'm going to teach you today. I'm going to teach you what the three pro-choice arguments are. I'm going to teach you how to identify them. So that way next week we can start learning how to respond to them. The abortion debate essentially revolves around these three arguments. So the first one is personhood, then we have circumstance, and then finally bodily rights. Personhood arguments argue that the fetus is not a person like you and I. Circumstance arguments assume that the fetus is not a person and then typically talk about something else. And then finally, bodily rights arguments agree that the fetus is a person, but argue that a woman can have an abortion anyway because of bodily autonomy. Those are the three arguments. Those are the three objections you're going to hear from the pro-choice person. And I'm going to dive now into each one individually so you can learn how to properly identify them because there's only three, but they come in a lot of different forms. They're going to wear a lot of different faces and you've got to be able to you know, discern, okay, which of these three arguments is the pro-choice person saying and kind of be able to read in between the lines, so to speak. So uh, the first argument is personhood. This is really what the entire abortion debate is about. If you remember from last week's episode when we talked about the embryology trap, a lot of times pro-life people think that the abortion debate is around science. But the truth is, is that it's actually around the philosophy. It's around this question of when do we become a person in the philosophical sense, a person that deserves a legal right to life. Typically, people are pro-choice because they don't think the fetus is a person like you and I. So personhood arguments are actually one of the easier arguments to spot as long as you don't fall into the embryology trap and mistake them for a confusion around science. 
Because typically personhood arguments are very focused on the question, you know, when do we become a person? What does the fetus lack that makes them not a person? And so the pro-choice person will talk about things like the fact that the fetus can't feel pain or doesn't have brain activity or is not able to experience the world or have memories or consciousness. They might even, you know, be a little less scientific and more vague and say things about it being, you know, just a clump of cells or not really a baby yet. So while it might sound like talking about, you know, brain activity and then talking about the fetus being, quote, just a clump of cells are two totally different arguments, they're actually the same argument. They're both personhood arguments. They're both arguments for why the fetus should not be considered a person like you and I. Now, the second category of argument is a circumstance argument. So a personhood argument is arguing that the fetus is not a person, while a circumstance argument is assuming that the fetus is not a person. The reason we call it a circumstance argument is because typically a circumstance argument is going to present in the pro-choice person bringing up a difficult individual or societal situation as a good justification for abortion. So somebody talking about people living in poverty or the foster care system being broken or even issues like rape. Now, the way you can test if something is a circumstance argument is to ask yourself, would this logic make any sense if it was applied to a newborn? Because a newborn is obviously a person. And so if the project person is assuming that the fetus is not a person with their argument, it'll just sound completely ridiculous when applied to somebody we know to be a person. Poverty is a great example. Nobody would say that it should be legal to kill all children who are living in poverty because at its core, poverty is a circumstance argument. It's hinging on this assumption that the fetus is not a person. So poverty is a really obvious example of a circumstance argument, but some circumstance arguments are going to be a little less obvious. For example, if someone says that they are personally pro-life, well, that would be a circumstance argument. And how do we know? Well, nobody would ever say I'm personally opposed to infanticide. You see how the statement, I'm personally pro-life, hinges on this assumption that the fetus is not a person. If you remember in last week's episode, I talked about the fact that you know there are three arguments, but there might be only two depending on how you count. And the reason I say that is because a circumstance argument is the assumption that the fetus is not a person. But behind that assumption typically is the belief or the argument that the fetus is not a person. Now, pro-lifers' tendencies when they encounter circumstance arguments is to do what I talked about in episode three, which is contradict the common ground. But this is really ineffective because, as I just mentioned, circumstance arguments are essentially just a precursor for a personhood argument. And when you contradict the common ground, what you're doing is you're essentially keeping the conversation on a debate about these difficult societal issues. So when a purchase person says that they think abortion should be legal because of poverty, you're now going to debate with them about poverty. Instead of doing what you need to do, which is you need to transition the conversation to the real argument, the argument that's underneath the circumstance argument, the personhood argument. Now, if the pro-choice person says something in the conversation and you're not sure what argument they're making, it's probably a circumstance argument. I took an ACT class in high school where they taught us that if you didn't know the answer, you should mark C because statistically speaking, it was most likely to be the correct answer. This is true in the abortion debate as well. If you don't know the answer, it's probably a circumstance argument. I would say that like 80% of what pro-choice people say in a conversation is a circumstance argument. 
Now, the interesting thing about circumstance arguments is the most strategic way to respond to them is going to vary based on how far away they are or how disconnected they are from the personhood argument that they're essentially covering. Because a circumstance argument is really just a fancy way of saying, I'm assuming that the fetus is not a person. And sometimes that assumption will be pretty close to a discussion of personhood. So for example, when you're talking about poverty, you're pretty close. Other times, though, the purchase person is going to be giving you a circumstance argument that might feel like it's coming from left field. For example, I had a student in Texas who a pro-choice person had told him that they were pro-choice because they were a feminist and he didn't know how to respond to it. And I was like, that's a circumstance argument because think about it. It doesn't make any sense to say that statement if you're not assuming that the fetus is not a person. Like nobody would say like, I'm pro-infanticide because of feminism. It just doesn't make any sense. The feminism comment was just so far away from the discussion of personhood that the most strategic thing for that student to do was to just ignore it. Now, this is really counterintuitive to volunteers because oftentimes as pro-life advocates, we think that we need to directly respond to everything the pro-choice person says. And the student in Texas thought that as well, which is why when the pro-choice person brought up feminism, he transitioned the conversation to a discussion of feminism. They ended up talking about the origins of feminism and what the early feminists believed about abortion and who could and could not identify as a feminist. And unsurprisingly, at the end of that conversation, that pro-choice woman was still pro-choice because when she said, I'm pro-choice because I'm a feminist, what she was really saying was, I'm assuming that the fetus is not a person. And behind that assumption is the argument that the fetus is not a person. And the student didn't address that at all. But if he would have done what I taught him to and stuck to the seven minute argument and gone through the personhood part of the seven minute argument with this woman he would have actually been addressing the feminist comment. It just wasn't a direct response. It wasn't using the word feminism, which is why he was stumped by it and decided to abandon his training. So how do you know when you should address a circumstance argument directly versus indirectly? Well, the answer to that is how easy is it to relate the circumstance argument to a newborn? If it's easy to relate the circumstance argument to a newborn, then I'll do the circumstance response. If it's difficult or kind of cumbersome, then I typically build common ground with the sentiment and then otherwise more or less ignore it. For example, if you're talking about poverty, it's really easy to make an analogy to a newborn. It's really easy to be like, we would all agree that it should be illegal to kill a newborn who's living in poverty. But something like feminism is kind of hard to relate to a newborn. And so I would just build common ground with that sentiment and then trust that that comment is going to be resolved when I eventually go through personhood later in the conversation. Now, if after you go through personhood, the pro-choice person continues to bring up this feminist comment, then yes, then you would need to address it directly with our circumstance response. But that's not what happened in this conversation. The pro-life student actually hadn't talked about personhood at all, and he let this comment about feminism just totally derail the conversation. Now, the third and final argument is a bodily rights argument. Bodily rights arguments say that even if the fetus was a person like a newborn, a woman should still be allowed to have an abortion because of a right to bodily autonomy. Now, the thing you have to understand about bodily rights arguments is that they're super popular in pro-choice literature and theory, but they're not very popular amongst just regular pro-choice people. And many people are surprised to hear that because we hear slogans all the time like, my body, my choice. But just because the pro-choice person is throwing around the word 
body does not actually mean that they're making a bodily rights argument. That's why I teach volunteers to always ask, are you saying that even if it kills a person, a woman has a right to have an abortion because of bodily autonomy, because that's a true bodily rights argument. And most people will say no. They'll say, I don't think it's a person. So the reason they're saying my body, my choice is because what they're trying to communicate to us is I think the fetus is morally or philosophically equivalent to like a tumor. And it should be my choice when I get a tumor removed from my body. That's a person an argument. Once again, you've got to address personhood to persuade that person. So you want to make sure that you're properly identifying bodily rights arguments. You don't want to misidentify a personhood argument as a bodily rights argument just because the word body is being thrown around. A true bodily rights argument is all about consent to use someone's body. It's the idea that even if the fetus is a person, a woman has a right to refuse somebody else using her body without her consent, which is why when you hear pro-choice people talk about it, they typically compare it to organ donation or like life support. So in conversations, you're going to hear people say things like, we don't force people to donate their bodies as life support. We don't force people to donate kidneys. People will sometimes talk about dead bodies having more consent rights than women. They'll talk about, you know, consent to sex does not automatically equal consent to pregnancy. It's kind of that like life support organ donation theme. Now, interesting fact, the seven minute argument does not actually address bodily rights arguments because as I said at the beginning, they're just not that common. So we do have training on how to respond to them, but I'm gonna be honest with you, most of our volunteers will go their entire year to two years volunteering with us and never learn it because they're gonna run into it only like once or twice on campus and that just doesn't give them enough incentive, I guess, to go figure out how to respond to it. So I will teach all of you the response to bodily rights, but it's not gonna be in the seven-minute argument. It'll be after we learn the seven-minute argument. So now we're going to do a little pop quiz. I'm going to say some pro-choice statements and then I'll pause and then you can either say out loud or in your head which of the three arguments this statement falls into. Is it personhood? Is it arguing that the fetus is not a person? Is it circumstance? Is it assuming that the fetus is not a person? Or is it bodily rights? Is it agreeing that the fetus is a person but arguing that a woman can have an abortion anyway because of bodily autonomy? So I actually got this list from a pro-choice blog. So this is some pro-choice person's personal opinion on why abortion should be legal. And I decided to make the quiz based on um, someone else's blog instead of like making, you know, my own kind of quiz because I wanted you to feel the distribution of what the answer is because <laughs> I think you're going to very quickly see that the answer is almost always circumstance. <laughs> so the first thing this woman says on her blog is that men should not have an opinion on abortion. What type of argument is that? Circumstance. It doesn't make any sense to say that men can't have an opinion on infanticide, for example. She's assuming that the fetus is not a person. The next thing she says is she talks about how big of a responsibility pregnancy is. What is that? Circumstance. Once again, assuming the fetus is not a person. Nobody would say that, you know, we can kill newborns because, you know, motherhood is a big responsibility. Next, she talks about the fact that teen moms should have access to abortion. What type of argument is that? Circumstance, once again. Then she talks about the broken adoption system. What argument is that? Circumstance. Then she talks about the lack of access to contraception. What type of argument is that? circumstance. Then she talks about how the fetus is, quote unquote, not its own being yet. What type of argument is that? 
personhood. Then she starts talking about back alley abortions, the fact that if we make abortion illegal, women are going to die from unsafe, illegal back alley abortions. What type of argument is that? circumstance. Then she starts talking about the fact that the fetus early in gestation cannot feel pain. What type of argument is that? Personhood. Then she talks about how early in the pregnancy, the fetus doesn't even have any brain waves. What type of argument is that? Personhood. Then she talks about how difficult it is to be postpartum and the kind of, you know, postpartum depression and the other things that women typically struggle with. What type of argument is that? Circumstance. Then she talks about how sometimes in utero, the fetus can be diagnosed with a disability and the family might not be ready to care for a child with, you know, Down syndrome, for example. What type of argument is that? Circumstance. And finally, she talks about how expensive it is to have a child. What type of argument is that? Circumstance. (laughs) I was not kidding when I said that it's pretty much always a circumstance argument. Um, This woman's entire article was just kind of a giant way of saying in a hundred different ways the fetus is not a person. I'm going to talk about all these issues because I fundamentally am assuming that the fetus is not a person. I hope that example helps simplify this debate for you so you can really see how, while you might have initially looked at that article and been overwhelmed by her list of, of things and felt like you needed a response for all of them, she's really just saying the three arguments. She's just saying them a hundred different ways. So if you found this exercise to be helpful, I've created a second pop quiz, so to speak, that has 18 different things that pro-choice people say. And what you're going to do is you're going to classify, like we did in this exercise, which argument is the pro-choice person making? Is it circumstance, personhood, or bodily rights? So if you want that pop quiz, go sign up for our email list. If you're already on the email list, you should have had the pop quiz emailed to you this week. If you didn't get the email for any reason, go ahead and check your spam folder or your promotional folder. A lot of times Google will actually send my emails there. If you're not on the email list yet, go ahead and sign up. Um, You can do so by either clicking on the link in the show notes or by going to our website. It's www.abortiondialogueacademy.org slash podcast. So sign up for that email list. That way you get all of the training resources from the show delivered right to your inbox. So the last thing I wanted to talk about on today's episode, I wanted to actually answer a question I was asked at a presentation recently. So a woman at a presentation asked me, you know, why is it that we're able to see such success? Because for my volunteers, they persuade so many pro-choice people that it honestly becomes kind of boring to them. (laughs) Like I kid you not, like I go to their meetings like once a month to get an update on what's going on. And a lot of times the volunteers are like, yeah, I persuaded some people this week, but like it was just a regular conversation. It was like a Tuesday. And it's so funny because then I do a parish presentation where a lot of people in the audience have been in this movement for like, you know, over 50 years and they've never persuaded anyone. And they're like, what are these kids doing that is so different? And so it's kind of hard to explain, but now that we've gone through five episodes, I've covered enough concepts that I can explain to you how is it possible that our volunteers can persuade one in five people, but most untrained pro-lifers will have these conversations and never persuade anyone. Well, the first thing you have to understand is that the pro-choice person is the judge of what is persuasive. In fact, my husband likes to say that the real authority in pro-life apologetics is the pro-choice person, because it doesn't matter how persuasive or compelling we think what we're saying is, the real test is, does it persuade the person we're talking to? 
And this is true in any controversial topic, for the record. Like if you're trying to persuade someone on religion or politics or really anything controversial, the true testament of is what you're saying compelling is not do you think it's compelling, but does the person on the other side think it's compelling? So pro-choice people are the judge and they're pro-choice for three reasons, personhood, circumstance, and bodily rights. So obviously, if you're trying to persuade the judge, you have to address these three reasons. But an untrained pro-lifer almost never does. And here's why. So when a pro-choice person brings up circumstance, for example, an untrained pro-lifer tends to contradict the common ground. So think of my example I talked about earlier in the episode. The pro-choice woman brought up feminism. And what did the pro-life student do? Well, he contradicted the common ground. Instead of building common ground on feminism and then transitioning to personhood, which was her real argument, he kept the conversation on the discussion of feminism. He kept the conversation off topic, so to speak, and didn't actually address her circumstance argument. Then when the pro-choice person brings up personhood, untrained pro-life people tend to fall into the embryology trap, which I talked about on episode four. We tend to mistake what the pro-choice person is saying to be a confusion around science. So then we spend the bulk of the conversation, you know, ranting about embryology, and we don't actually address their philosophical argument. And then when bodily rights comes up, what I see untrained pro-life people do is actually fall into the embryology trap again. Uh, We tend to think that the pro-choice person is legitimately confused about basic anatomy and that they actually think that the fetus is a literal part of the woman's body. So once again, we talk about embryology and we don't address the real reason they're pro-choice. So we're 0 for 3. We have contradicted the common ground and not addressed their circumstance argument. We've fallen into the embryology trap and not addressed their personhood argument. And then we've fallen into the embryology trap again and not addressed their bodily rights argument. So obviously, if you went to court and the judge has three objections and you respond to none of the three objections, then yeah, you're going to lose the case. It's kind of a no-brainer. But that's actually the great news because I think so many people who've been in this movement for a long time are just ready to write off pro-choice people as like closed-minded and unreachable. But the truth is we just haven't been actually addressing the reasons they're pro-choice. And once you start doing that, you realize, well, first of all, it just doesn't take very long to persuade people. I mean, yeah, pro-choice people say a bunch of things, but as we showed on this episode, it's really just like two or three arguments and it just doesn't take that long to respond to two or three arguments. I mean, that's why it's pro-life in seven minutes, because it takes about seven minutes to respond to the reasons people are pro-choice. Once we go out and we start doing that and we start actually addressing the real reasons people are pro-choice, a lot of them are really open-minded. Like A lot of people are willing to hear us out and change their mind on this topic. And that's why I have so much hope and I believe so much in this program because I see the potential out there. I see how we've not been communicating with pro-choice people effectively. We've not been able to reach them. And of course we haven't because our natural tendencies, they don't line up to be persuasive. But once you get training though, then you can be persuasive and we can reach people, which is why I want to ask all of you, if you haven't yet, please share this information with the pro-life people in your life. Like the reason that we are publishing all of this content for free is because we want pro-life people to receive this training. We want to equip as many pro-life people as possible with this information. Please help us do that. Share this podcast with the people in your life who you think would want to know this information and would want to learn how they can be more effective in talking about this topic. 
So next episode, we are going to start learning the seven-minute argument, which is good because I thought I was going to get kicked out of my mom's group if I kept dragging this out any longer. Um, but yeah, we're going to start learning the seven-minute argument. Uh, we teach it to volunteers in four parts. So we're going to do part one at the next episode, and that is going to be circumstance arguments. So we're going to teach you how to respond to circumstance arguments with the first part of the seven-minute argument. So that episode will come out in two weeks. So tune in then. I'm really excited for you to get to start learning the seven-minute argument. If you liked today's episode, you can help support the channel by leaving us a five-star review. Make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. And if you haven't yet, sign up for our podcast email list on our website. That's www.abortiondialogacademy.org slash podcast. That way you get all the training exercises from the show delivered right to your inbox. Now I will see all of you next Saturday as I continue to teach you how you can persuade someone to be pro-life in seven minutes. Until next week, God bless.